Good job, Jessica, on trying to read those names. That's a tough one. She got the tough one today. As we uh, start this sermon, censors and sinkholes, that's where we're headed today. As we look at this unbelievable story from the, the book of Numbers. When's the last time you read the book of Numbers? It's been a while. That's too long. Come on. Uh, many people, though, have a hard time reading the book of Numbers. And I, and I understand because as its name implies, there are a lot of lists of numbers in the book of Numbers. That's kind of where we get its name. It starts out with a census where Moses is told to take a census of all the people in the land. And so there's this long list of numbers as they go through uh, all the fighting men and all the tribes and so forth. And then it gets really exciting because it goes from a list of people to then tell us where each tribe was to be camped around the tabernacle uh, as they're in the desert. And, and who, which tribe packs up what and who goes first when they are on the move and they start marching. And then from there, it goes on to tell us the list of duties of the tribe of Levi. And it goes into the detailed list of all the clans of the tribe. Uh, and then it tells us what each clan is responsible for in the work of the tabernacle. And this is the first five chapters of Numbers. It's like reading a field manual or uh, the book of discipline of the Methodist church, where it's just kind of giving these descriptions of this committee has to have this many people and it meets so many times a year and it has to have this many representatives that are male and this many female and this many young adults and so on. Uh, so I can understand my, why many of us don't study numbers very often because for the first five chapters, it is pretty boring. Unless you're one of those rare people who actually likes list of numbers, in order. Anybody? A couple of y'all? Yeah, I love it. Uh, for the rest of you, I know it's tough, but once you get past that, then it actually does get into story and narrative, and it's telling a specific story. It is giving us the story of God, uh, of the people of God, after the Exodus, while they're wandering in the desert. The whole book takes place in the wilderness of the desert. In fact, that's what the Hebrew Bible calls it, in the wilderness. Uh, and we see the trials and the struggles of the people of God as they are led by Moses and seeking to be formed into the people of God. And this formation is not pretty. It's very frustrating. Uh, there's a lot of rebellion. The 40 years in the desert is marked by the constant failure of the people of God. And there's rebellion, there's complaint, but it is also marked by God's presence with the people in spite of their rebellion. And so throughout, even in the rebellion, we see God's presence with them. And then starting in chapter 18 of Numbers, we have this incredible story of a rebellion that takes place once again against the leadership of Moses. And so I want us to reread this incredible story from Numbers. It starts out, now Korah, son of Izar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, along with Dathan and Abraham, sons of Eliab, and On, son of Peleth, descendants of Reuben, took 250 Israelite men. So there's 250 Israelite men, well-known, chosen from the assembly, leaders of the congregation, well-known men, and they confronted Moses. 
they assembled against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. Moses, you've gone too far. All the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. So why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Moses, you and Aaron, you've gone too far. We've had enough of your leadership. We're done with it. Here we see a classic power struggle. And a man named Korah has uh, announcing his candidacy to replace Moses as the leader of this motley band of Israelites. We can kind of relate. You see, if you watch TV at all, you're starting to see a lot of ads for people who want to be president, who want to be the leader. And so here's what's happening is this power struggle of who is going to lead this nation of Israel. And so Korah comes up. And it's interesting because we actually have three different rebellions going on at once here in these these two chapters. And we're going to focus primarily on this first rebellion. Uh, But Korah and his followers are using an interesting argument against Moses and Aaron's leadership. Here's the gist of this argument. Korah says that because the whole nation is holy, anyone can serve as God's priests in the tabernacle. And he's using as his argument the the, the law, the Torah. We find this in Exodus. You are to be a kingdom of, do you remember the word? Priests. The whole nation of Israel is to be a kingdom of priests. The whole nation is to be holy, to, to help the rest of the world understand what it means to live holy lives. That text is in Exodus 19.6. And he, he's basically saying, since all of us are holy and since we are a kingdom of priests, we should have the right to do whatever we want to in the service of God in the tabernacle. That is Korah's argument. But let me try to help and explain and give you a little bit of context here. Korah is from the tribe of Levi. And the Levites were, in fact, in charge of the tabernacle where the presence of God was and where they made the sacrifices. And they had more access to the tabernacle than any other Israelite. Uh, But the priestly office was separate from the Levites. The priests, uh, that office was reserved to Aaron and his kin. And part of that responsibility as priest, uh, as Aaron, was to burn the incense to the Lord burning incense to the Lord in, uh, in censers. And, and they were mad because they couldn't burn the incense of God. So they thought that Aaron and Moses, because of their responsibilities and callings, were exalting themselves over the rest of the nation. Does that make sense? That's kind of where we are in this story. And the text says that when Moses heard this complaint, you know what the first thing he did was? He fell on his face and prayed. I love that. That's great leadership, in my opinion. That's the first thing he does. I love that image. To me, it implies kind of a humility and a horror of the charges brought against him. And he chastises the Levites for their pride. And basically, he tells them, you know what? God has given you, Levites, a great honor. You have this great honor. And you have these responsibilities in the tabernacle to minister to the people. And now you want even more and you want the priesthood too. And in a play of words, Moses tells Korah, you have gone too far. You are going too far. And so next, Moses summons two of the men that were uh, named earlier, Dathan and Abiram. 
and they are singled out earlier in the story, and he tells them to come and face Moses. He's like, we're gonna have a standoff here. I want you to face me and tell me what's going on. Why are you upset? But they refuse to come. And in fact, they send a reply back to Moses. And here is the reply that they send back. We will not come. Is it too little that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also lord it over us? Let that sink in for a moment. Is it too little that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey? What land did they come from? Egypt. What was their occupation in Egypt? Slavery. Where were they supposed to go? The promised land, which was supposed to be a land flowing with milk and honey. They're basically saying, Egypt is the land we want. We're better off there as slaves. Why have you brought us here? It's a rejection of the call from God. It's a rejection of what God has called them to do. It says, you've taken us from a land flowing with milk and honey. We had it all. Forgetting they were slaves. The very next verse says that Moses gets very angry. (laughs) It's funny because this is the only place in the Old Testament where it says Moses gets very angry. There's many times he gets angry. But this is the only place where it says he gets very angry. And in fact, the Hebrew word used for very angry is a word that's typically reserved for God and the wrath of God, right? So that you can tell that Moses, not too happy in this moment. Moses has had enough, basically. And so Moses tells Korah and his followers to present their case before God the next day. He's drawn a line in the sand. And here's, here's what he tells him. He says, each man is to take a censer and to take that censer, 250 of them, 250 of these chosen, well-established men of God on one side and Aaron and Moses on the other side with their censers. Because that's what they were arguing, that we should be able to take the censer, the incense, and, and present it to God. So, The text says that the glory of the Lord appeared to the whole assembly and the Lord said to Moses, separate yourselves from this congregation so that I may consume them in a moment. Yeah. Not a verse you want coming out of the mouth of God, right? You don't want it to be any, uh, hold on, God, I'm gonna go away. I don't care which way, but I'm going away. Uh, this is what God basically says to Moses. Now we see God's, God's wrath is about to come down on the people. But what happens next to me shows uh, the true beauty of Moses and Aaron and their leadership because they fall face down again to the ground and they beg God not to destroy all the people on account of one man's sin. So God agrees, and he tells Moses to separate themselves from the tents of Korah and the tents of Dathan and the tents of Abiram. He says, don't go near them. And Moses prays for all to hear. This is basically what he says. He says, if these families die a normal death, then everything I, Moses, have said is wrong. 
And this isn't God speaking. But if the Lord brings something totally new that we have never seen before, and the earth opens up and swallows them with everything they own, then you will know that they have treated the Lord with contempt. Immediately the verse says, and the earth opened up and swallowed their tents, their families, their children, and everything they owned. A giant sinkhole just comes up and swallows those families. It's quite a dramatic story, isn't it? That's something indeed that the people had never seen before, and they'd seen a lot. And it's one of those stories where you say, can you believe that that happened? But it did. And here is what I want us to take from this dramatic story. Rebellion is like a cancer that will swallow you up. Rebellion is like a cancer that will swallow you up. We have to be careful how we live. Rebellion against God's word never ends well, does it? Korah's rebellion almost, hear this, it almost wiped out the whole nation of Israel. Our rebellion doesn't just affect us, does it? Our rebellion doesn't just affect us, it affects the people around us. It affects our children, our spouse, our coworkers, the people we hang out with, our friends. Our rebellion bleeds into other people's lives. And it can have dire consequences. It is like a cancer that will swallow us up. What's so troubling, though, I think about Korah's rebellion is that Korah is taking the word of God and twisting it ever so slightly to make it say what he wants it to say. To give him more authority that God didn't want for him. He wanted more power. It wasn't the fact that Aaron and Moses were lording over them. It was just that Aaron and Moses had been given an assignment that was different than. Just as Korah and the Levites were given a different assignment that was different from the other tribes. But each tribe tribe had their assignments that they were in charge of. But one wanted more power than the others. But in that human nature, so often we're... We do the same thing. Usually in humanity, I always ask the question, uh, is there money involved and power involved? And, and that's usually the case. It, it boils down to money and power. Rebellion, though, is like a cancer that will swallow you up if you're not careful. Now, I know that some of you might still be having a hard time with this story, scratching your head. That's pretty harsh, it seems like, that God would swallow up these families just because they rebelled. But there's a couple of comments that I want to make about that as we, we think about the implications of this story. First is this. The nation of Israel had a high responsibility of loyalty to God because of their called out nature. They were to be a kingdom of priests, holy to God. What was the purpose of the nation of Israel? What were they to do? They were blessed to be a blessing. A blessing to who? The rest of the world. They were called out to be the example of how to live so that the rest of the world would look to them and know, oh, this is how to have life. This is what it means to be in God's favor. But here we see this called out people living in rebellion against what God had called them to do. And it had dire consequences. 
But here's the thing, church. We too, if you are a, bo- a member of the body of Christ, you have been called out. How you live makes a difference. It affects the people around you. Second, these, these Israelites have been given an incredible opportunity of faith by experiencing things that we probably haven't experienced before. They got to experience incredible miracles, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, manna in the desert, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, and the mighty presence of God in the tabernacle. They had been given so much more, and because of that, there was more responsibility placed upon them. With much power comes great responsibility, and they forgot that, and there are dire consequences for that. And also as slaves, though, for 400 years, God had to have a firm hand on them to teach them the difference between right and wrong. And that isn't easy work. But with this great privilege and grace and responsibility comes consequences for disobedience. But here's what you need to understand about God. He hates sin. He hates when we rebel and disobey. See, And here's the thing that we have to understand as well. God hasn't changed his mind about sin from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God still hates sin. God is still a God who wants us to be obedient. Too often we we get it confused though. And, And we think to ourselves, well, why is God so vengeful, it seems like, in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Numbers and some of these other texts? Why does he seem to to come upon them with incredible judgment? It's the wrong question. You know what the right question is? Why hasn't God done that to me? Because I deserve it. You deserve it. Because we serve a holy God and we are not holy. We have broken his law. Why hadn't God come down on me like that? It's because he is gracious. We, we have to understand also that God's judgment is part of his divine love. Sometimes we don't like that part. We don't like divine judgment and justice when it comes to love. We, we'll just take the love part, the squishy feeling part. We don't like the hard part of divine justice. But with, hear, hear this, listen, this is important. Without justice, you cannot have love. Without justice, you cannot have love. You cannot love someone without providing justice. I love this quote from Roy Gain. He says this, justice is the aspect of love that protects the boundaries of well-being around each individual. Without justice, without those boundaries, you can't have love. You actually have chaos. When God punishes and brings judgment and justice, it's not what he wants to do because he would rather not do it. He would rather us be faithful but rebellion is like a cancer that will swallow us up this story though from the book of Numbers serves as a warning and a reminder for all of us to follow the Lord as faithfully as we can that we need to live in humility in our families, in our leadership, in our work and that God has called us to be faithful That's what I take from this story. That rebellion is like a cancer. It can swallow us up. So the question is, how are you living? Are you living in rebellion? What parts of your life are being rebellious to what God is calling you to do? So 
if you haven't already in your bulletin is that connect card. On the, the back of that connect card is a, a my next step section. And I invite you to think about that. What is your next step? I'd invite Jason and the, the band to come up here. Because rebellion is like a cancer that will swallow you up. So I want you to think about your life. Where in your, your life are you rebelling against God? Against what God wants you to do? For some of you, immediately something came to your mind. I would encourage you to write it on that piece of paper. Not because then I can lord it over you. Oh, I see where the rebellion. No. God already knows where you're rebelling. But there's power in writing down and confessing where we have failed. Because as that prayer card earlier about addiction and the secret and the shame of addiction, there's only shame when we hide. But in light of the grace of God, there's freedom. When we confess our rebellion, it's the beginning of freedom. It's the beginning of when your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ can come around you and say, yeah, I know you're broken here, but we still love you. We're still gonna work with you in this. So where are you rebelling? How is rebellion affecting your life? Where do you need to confess and repent for rebellion in your life? What is your next step that you need to take? I'm gonna pray for us, and as we pray, you can write if you want to or see where God is leading you. Lord, I thank you for your divine justice, a justice that protects those who are weak, protects those who cannot protect themselves, your divine justice that seeks the best for everyone, that, that draws boundaries for our good, not for evil, but for our protection. But more than that, I, I, I thank you, God, for your divine grace. That in spite of our failings, in spite of our addictions, in spite of our shame, that you woo us to you. That you still call us out of shame into the light of your presence. And you don't shame us. You just say, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary. Come, all who are broken, and I will give rest. So, God, where we are rebelling right now, I pray that you would break the power of that rebellion. I pray, oh God, that we would confess that to someone else. And I pray, oh God, that you would indeed send your spirit to give us power because we can't do it. We are helpless without you. We need your spirit to guide us in truth and we need each other to hold each other up. Just as Moses in the wilderness needed his brothers alongside him to hold his hands up when he got weary, we need each other. Help us, oh God, not to be a rebellious people, but a people broken, but covered in grace seeking you, not hiding in shame. Come, Lord Jesus, have your way in us this day.
your holy name we pray. Amen.